Where, after all, do universal human rights begin? In small places close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. Yet they are the world of the individual person, the neighborhood he lives in, the school or college he attends, the factory, farm, or office where he works. Such are the places where every man, woman, and child seeks equal justice, equal opportunity, equal dignity without discrimination. Unless these rights have meaning there, they have little meaning anywhere. Without concerned citizen action to uphold them close to home, we shall look in vain for progress in the larger world. This quote by Eleanor Roosevelt illustrates the role of local communities in fostering human rights. Joining us for this month's episode to discuss local movements and human rights cities is Professor Martha Davis. Professor Davis teaches constitutional law, U.S. human rights advocacy, and professional responsibility at Northeastern Law School. She's a faculty director for the law school's Program on Human Rights and the Global Economy. She's currently a fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and has been the Fulbright Distinguished Chair in Human Rights and Humanitarian Law at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute in Sweden and is a member of the Expert Committee for Human Right to Water, a Geneva-based NGO that advocates for water and human rights. Thank you so much for joining us today, Martha. Sure. Happy to be here. So there is a common tendency in the United States to sometimes refer to human rights when we refer to other countries. And I'd love to start our conversation with you sharing your perspectives on the importance of embracing human rights, values, and approaches and language within the U.S. context. Sure, that's a great question. I came to working on human rights in the United States from just being a domestic lawyer working on women's rights. And I found that I was frustrated a lot because of the judiciary in particular's failure to recognize some of the importance of welfare, education, or water, or other things that we identify as human rights in other contexts that somehow were not recognized in the U.S., And so when I had the chance, when I um, moved into academia, I decided that I would really focus on thinking about how human rights frames, you know, that had been developed internationally might apply in the U.S. and be used in the U.S., um, not only at the national level, but at the local level as well. And one of the things I think that you gain from that strategically in a way is that it changes the conversation, you know, that um, being able to talk about something as a human right and and point to uh, norms that exist internationally around human rights, even if you're in a domestic context, means that there has to be some response. You know, there has to be some analysis of what that means domestically. Often courts reject it and say, we don't protect rights, but it still changes the conversation, changes the way they think about the domestic right, you know, that may be protected legislatively, if not at a human rights level. So for me, I think it contributes to the dialogue domestically and then also allows us to connect with what's happening internationally in ways that can be very empowering for activists, um, very empowering for government actors who are interested in expanding um, rights as well. 
Thank you so much for that response. I'd like to focus in on one particular issue, which is the human right to water. And you've written extensively about the human right to water and water affordability in the United States. And this may come as a shock to many people around the world, as well as people in the United States, that there are problems with access to safe, affordable, clean drinking water in the U.S. So could you paint a picture of this particular landscape for us and why this particularly has an effect, a disproportionate effect on Black and Indigenous communities? Sure. In the U.S., there are a number of things that contribute to this. One is in all parts of the U.S. really is aging infrastructure, which back in the Reagan years, there was a great pullback of federal support for water access and delivery. And as a result, the you know, delivering water to households is expensive. And um, the cost of that fell onto local governments. And they were not able to sustain the same level of maintenance that had been available when there was more federal funding. And so around the country, we've got issues with aging infrastructure that then lead to lead in water. So they affect water quality. And then also um, increased leaks, increased uh, cost of repairs when there are leaks and flooding and so on, so, which then increase the cost of actually delivering the water. So that's true in certainly in, in urban areas nationwide. And it's typically low-income folks who are living in areas where the maintenance has been delayed or, or not followed up, or in areas where um, connections have not even, maybe even water connections haven't been, been made. Um, if you look at a map of the United States, uh, sort of a heat map that shows where uh, lack of water is really an issue. You'll see that the reddest parts are indigenous communities in uh, New Mexico, Arizona, Alaska, and up close to the Canadian border as well. And uh, again, that goes back to what lack of investment by the federal government, really, because it's huge expense and not something that local governments, and especially not the tribes, you know, can afford to to maintain. The the other factor, I mean, and this is kind of related, I guess, but that. Water is regulated at the most local level for the most part. Uh, it's communities, cities, towns, sometimes counties, sometimes there are regional bodies, but they're local regional bodies. It's not like, you know, uh, 10 states or something like that. And so that means that it's very much a patchwork. And if you look across the country, there are great variations in rates, great variations in the approaches to how to balance the water budget. And so that lack of coordination, I think, has also hidden some of the issues because they happen on such a local level. And it's only when there's a crisis that it it surfaces and becomes something that uh, garners greater attention. So you've touched on some really important points, the importance of investing in infrastructure over a period of time in order to realize basic rights and the need for both federal government as well as local government investments on an ongoing basis. I'd like to switch to ask you about a connected topic, which is that of human rights cities. Could you explain what a human rights city is? Sure. The human rights city movement is something that started back in the, I think it was the early 90s, just as a concept, just as an idea that human rights shouldn't be just the province of nations, nation states, you know, the way the United Nations looks at it, that really there there was a lot going on at the city level and that implementation of human rights happens at the local level. You know, that goes back to the the very familiar quote from Eleanor Roosevelt about uh, human rights 
close to home. That is where a lot of the implementation happens. And, and certainly that's where the water rights implementation happens. So that's where I think they're, they're connected is because access to water is such a local issue. It, it's at the city level where a human rights perspective really makes a huge difference. So the idea of human rights cities originally was more of a, a mindset. And then, uh, and you know, you can feel two ways about this. Then the lawyers kind of got involved and, um, and, and developed the idea that there should be a mechanism for cities to actually declare themselves to be human rights cities, to incorporate aspects of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or aspects of um, various UN treaties into the governing mechanisms of the city. And there are a few cities in the U.S. that have done that. There are more cities in Europe and in Asia that have taken that step. But to talk about the U.S., you know, an example, a very good example is San Francisco, which after the Beijing conference in 1996, I think or so, a group of activists came back and worked with the city government to actually incorporate the elements of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women into the city government. And so that there are standards, CDOS standards that San Francisco holds itself to. They did gender audits of city agencies to proactively look at gender issues, you know, in the same way that uh, proactive action is expected at the international level. And since San Francisco has done that, there have been a number of other cities that have either declared themselves to be human rights cities or, you know, along the same lines have uh, adopted CEDAW. So Pittsburgh, for example, has done that. Cincinnati has done that as well. And in those instances, again, they haven't just passed a resolution saying we think CEDAW is great or issued a statement saying we think that the United States should ratify CEDAW, but they've actually incorporated the standards into their uh, own local government. The human rights cities movement is housed internationally in the uh, United Cities and Local Governments, NGO, which is the representative of cities at the UN. The U.S. cities have not been so active in that body, but there's a world forum every year of human rights cities that come together and share, you know, ideas and, um, you know, agendas. There's scholarship involved with that as well. So it's a, it's a real active movement in line with what's happening with cities in a lot of other areas too. You know, we see cities stepping up to try to improve what's happening on the national level in terms of the environment, adopting the SDGs, acting in ways around um, migration and so on. These are all issues that you know, where the rubber hits the road at the city level and cities have been excluded from a lot of the thinking internationally and they're really organizing to try to avoid that. Human rights cities movement is is a sort of parallel to all that, all the rest of that effort. So could the human rights city framework and movement provide inspiration for activists working on the right to water in cities like Flint, Michigan or Jackson. And I'd imagine that working on the right to water also connects to other core rights and economic rights that local residents are trying to access. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, I mean, the human right to water is closely connected with housing, of course, because that's the way in which most people receive their daily water needs. And I should add, too, that there's a human right to sanitation is an independent uh, human right. And of course, very related to water, but also separate. And so that right is also very bound up with housing and health. So you're absolutely right that a human rights city, while some cities have addressed just aspects of human rights, said we're, we're going to focus on women, we're going to focus on 
race or, or um, some other aspect of human rights. In fact, water is something that cuts across all of these things. And, and CEDAW itself mentions or identifies water as a particular issue for rural women. It's also identified along with housing in, in the race convention. So even if you're taking a very legalistic view and saying we're just going to you know, implement the provisions of the UN documents, the right to water is implicit in all of those. What we found in working at this very local level with water utilities is that they haven't, you know, they're, they're, of course, they're aware of the importance of water in people's lives, you know, it'd be impossible not to, not to understand that. But they haven't thought about it in terms of rights, typically. And I think one of the reasons for that, especially at, at, um, in small utilities, delivering water is a huge technical issue huge engineering issue and the people that are involved in it that you know that actually make it work you know all credit to them when it works is they're engineers and they're not thinking about racial disparities gender disparities and so on it just hasn't been part of the agenda of the um, you know water utilities nationwide I think that's changing I think that changed a lot with the activism in Flint and, and in Detroit that there's more awareness but the problem is, going back to infrastructure, is that at these local levels, they don't necessarily have the ability to collect data or to do the kinds of studies or restructuring that would be required in order to make sure that they are doing a better job of you know, addressing racial disparities. So as an example, we at Northeastern did a study a few years ago of water rates just in Massachusetts. Um, and in order to get the rates, for many of the places, we had to file FOIL requests asking how many residents have been shut off, how many payment plans have you negotiated. And for the most part, it was very difficult for the utilities to generate that information. They have it. Of course, they have to, they have to know, but they don't collect it and they don't analyze it. They don't have the capacity to do that. And so without doing that, very difficult for them to see whether there are some structural issues, you know, in the, in the way that they've developed policies that have a disparate racial or, or some other impact that is unfair and unnecessary. You know, I mentioned federal funding earlier. I mean, in fact, in very recent times, there has been a new influx of federal funds as part of the infrastructure bill. And then also with the COVID funding that came from the federal government. And both of those are, you know, very welcome to help address the significant problems that uh, water authorities face. But what hasn't happened yet, which you know, we're trying to work on, is that some of the funds could be used to ex- improve data management, to improve the utility's ability to structure its policies in ways that are fair and that better ensure that everyone who needs water is getting it. And instead, I think the dire emergency posed by leaking pipes means that that's where the, the focus has been. You know, plus the fact, again, that it's, it's engineers mostly who are thinking we got to fix our pipes and not thinking, well, how are we making decisions about who gets a payment plan? And are we, is there some implicit bias in the way that we're doing that? You know, they, the only way for them to find that out is to collect some, to analyze some data. But, the, you know, it hasn't been a priority. In recent years, many cities in the United States have declared themselves to be sanctuary cities. And I'm wondering if you could describe this movement around sanctuary cities and how that intersects with the notion of a human rights city. So, of course, the sanctuary city movement has been 
very much in the news because of uh, opposition, not only from the federal government, especially during the Trump years, but also from more conservative states where you've got city, blue cities or progressive cities or immigrant-friendly cities that are declaring themselves to be sanctuaries and states that are fighting that using um, tools of uh, state preemption in order to combat the cities. You know, in the U.S., and this is kind of where we started, the use of the human rights frame is not so common. I mean, people use it rhetorically often, but thinking about it as really something that is a tangible standard, you know, that should be enforced, I think is much more unusual. And so in the sanctuary city movement, I I think human rights is usually used more rhetorically, even though clearly what sanctuary cities or or immigrant-friendly cities or welcoming cities are doing is consistent, completely consistent with uh, a human rights frame. But maybe for political reasons, because of um, the the idea of American exceptionalism, that we're not subject to uh, human rights in the same way that other countries might be, that whatever we do isn't a human rights violation in the way it would be if it was done somewhere else, Um, that the phrase human rights isn't so commonly used to actually promulgate a standard. So having said that, though, you know, what you often have is um, cities that are involved in all of these areas. You know, so a human rights city is very likely to have policies that are immigrant friendly or welcoming, you know, and also very likely to have policies that are uh, working towards, uh, you know, environmental justice and so on. You know, so it's an awareness that permeates the entire city government. The issue that we face, uh, and this is true worldwide, is that cities tend to be more liberal, you know, more progressive than um, rural areas. So it's great and important because it affects a lot of people that cities are, you know, moving in this direction and have started to incorporate more into their policy development mechanisms, you know, sort of ideas and norms of human rights. But we need to think about how to make that something that doesn't further divide the rural and the urban, you know, that it should be something that is common. So on the one hand, the focus on cities is is great because there's there's progress to be made there. But on the other hand, you know, it is important to think about how a human rights frame applies, can resonate with people outside of the urban settings. I'd like to zoom out a bit to talk about the national context. How do you think the fact that the United States does not currently have a UN-accredited national human rights instrument affect efforts to bring meaning to international human rights in the U.S.? So a national human rights institution. Yes, so the U.S. does not have such a thing. We do have a U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, but they historically have really steered away from addressing human rights per se, you know, really uh, focused narrowly according to their statute on civil rights. Not every country in the world has a national human rights institution, but we're definitely outliers in that regard. And I think that what that means is that when the U.S. looks at how it's going to interact with the U.N., how it's going to meet its obligations under treaties, it was just reviewed under the Race Convention, for example, that it's a very disorganized approach. You know, there isn't any central commission or body that is collecting the information or then disseminating it back out to people in the United States once there's a third review. The State Department does have a person now who is coordinating some of that work, but it's a big job for, <laughs> for a, um, a single person who has other, other jobs as well. And so 
So I think what is lost is really a more stable engagement with the international community looking outward and a more stable engagement looking inward, you know, or towards the rest of the U.S. that translates what's going on in the U.N. or what's going on with international bodies for communities around the United States. It's interesting because the U.S. has at least 200 human rights commissions, local human rights commissions, many of which are doing great work locally on issues. They have a coordinating body, the International Association of Official Human Rights Agencies, which is a loose association of these human rights agencies. They're only loosely connected with what's going on with human rights internationally. I think they'd like to be more connected. A national human rights institution could really help with that, but they're not in a position to to do that work themselves as a non-governmental organization. And so there, you know, there definitely is something lost in terms of continuity and stability by not having such an institution. Sweden is one of the most recent countries that created a national human rights institution. They're just getting off the ground. And the first thing that they're doing is doing a, a sort of a national temperature taking to set out priorities for what they're going to, to work on. They're not going to be receiving complaints or resolving complaints, but they're going to be um, sort of spokespeople for human rights within the country. That's really what we're missing, you know, by not having some institution that, that serves that function. I'm wondering your perspectives on the current Supreme Court and how the Supreme Court will affect rights in the U.S. Well, that's a big topic. And uh, it's hard to think of very much positive to say right now <laughs> about that. Um, I mean, one thing I'll, I'll just mention is the historically the Supreme Court's willingness in fairly recent past to engage with human rights, you know, directly. And so Justice Kennedy was particularly open to this, uh, but so was Justice O'Connor, uh, even Justice Rehnquist. Um, and on the current court, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Breyer, who just left the court, all of them said, uh, we want to be in dialogue with judges of high courts in other countries, and also in dialogue with groups like the uh, European Court of Human Rights, for example, you know, some of the regional human rights bodies. And uh, one of the ways that we dialogue with them is to look at their opinions and cite to them if they're relevant to what we're considering. The court has really backed away from that. It was very controversial for a short time because the cases where the court was looking at those uh, sources were cases that were controversial do domestically, so involving same-sex sodomy or, or marriage equality and so on. And so the issue of whether human rights is a valid thing to look at got bound up with the, those domestic controversies. And the court has really backed away from looking internationally, which I think is a loss because it means that they're not in dialogue with these other courts. The U.S. opinions lose relevance internationally, you know, so instead of being the great beacons that Brown v. Board was or the Miranda uh, case, we've got cases like Dobbs, which are not seen uh, in the same light uh, internationally. So to talk more generally about the, the court, I mean, we've got a court right now that has, you know, maybe some questionable legitimacy because of the methods by which a couple of the justices were appointed as a result of Senate machinations. And uh, I think that, you know, the result has been what some senators and activists wanted, which is a court that's extremely historically right wing and not, and adopting a very constrained view of the Due Process Clause and of individual rights, including 
a rejection of precedent. And I think that's what is most shocking to lawyers is the way in which several members of the current court have been so cavalier about rejecting precedents that have been on the books for, for years. And as part of that, blatantly rejecting the idea that people organize their lives around the, around the stability of the law, you know, and particularly that's clear in the reproductive rights case that people expected, women expected and, and their partners expected that they uh, would be able to access abortion as a fundamental right um, and that it had been that way for quite a many, you know, many decades. And uh, that uh, yet the court said, well, we, we don't place much weight on that reliance. It's not the kind of reliance the law should really care about. Our morale has been boosted by Ketanji Brown-Jackson's appointment to the court and her uh, vigor in addressing issues in oral argument, which has been thrilling to see, really. But she and her, Lenny Kagan and Justice Sotomayor, remain in the minority. And we don't know how long that will be, but we'll see when, when the tide turns, whether the rejection of precedent swings the other way. But it, it, either way, it undermines the stability of the law and makes the law seem even more political than people might have thought it was uh, going in, um, which it can't be a good thing. So as we look around the world, we see human rights challenges of uh, grave proportions. And I'm wondering from your work on human rights cities and local movements, are there bright spots? Are there case studies? Are there examples that you would lift up for us as we think about how to integrate human rights values and approaches in the United States? There definitely are. And I, you know, again, I'll go back. You mentioned human rights cities. I do think that what's happening at the local level is a place where we can have hope. I mentioned the environmental issues earlier when the Trump administration pulled out of the Paris Agreement, cities in the U.S. and around the world came together with new plans for how local governments would be able to make up a considerable amount of the, the difference that the U.S. pullout meant. I think we see that in uh, some other areas as well. So I think that what's important about that is the way in which it is responsive to local activists. You know, I think it's much harder for grassroots folks to have that kind of impact nationally, but they can have an impact, a significant impact locally. And then that builds, you know, from there. And so I think that seeing those kinds of local activism, you know, as we saw in Flint, as we saw in Detroit when the shutoffs had happened, and now I'll, I'll say going back to water, Detroit in the 2000s had significant numbers of 20,000, 30,000 more water shutoffs related to the Detroit bankruptcy uh, with a lot of hardship for many people. Um, It's been years of struggle, but Detroit has now adopted a new structure for rate paying that is going to be more accommodating low-income people and has adopted some new policies that relate to shutoffs. So you know, the struggle that lasted for quite a while and shouldn't have been so tough, you know, because we're talking about really basic human need in the long run has had some positive impact. And I think that's the, the kind of thing we can take, um, take heart from. Thank you so much for joining us today, Martha Davis. Sure, you're welcome. It was great to talk with you. I'm Sushma Raman, Executive Director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and host of Justice Matters. You can listen to other episodes of Justice Matters on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Learn more about our work at the center at our website, carcenter.hks.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This is Justice Matters. Thanks for listening.